Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I want to start with just a couple quick announcements. We've got some great applications for the ACRAC intern spot. We're going to close that process and make a choice soon. So if you want to apply, send in your application with your CV and a description of why you would make a good intern to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Also, remember, we're now doing random recommendations at the end. Again, I still won't be including my guests yet because I'm adding this in later after I've already interviewed them, but soon I'll be getting guests to contribute to that too. So today you'll hear uh, from me. But if you have any random recommendations that you think are fantastic and you'd be interested in having me share them on the show, then please send them on in to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. All right, let's jump right in and get started. And I'm so excited because we have a really, really exciting and unique opportunity and episode today. So I'm thrilled to have with me three different guests, and I'm going to introduce them now. So we've got Lisa Meeks, who is an assistant professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School and has a particular interest in social justice, especially for uh, for marginalized populations. Uh, And that's got her interested in the topic we're going to talk about today, which is disabilities in trainees in medicine. We also have with us Dr. Mike Fitzsimons, who regular listeners will recognize as someone who's been on the show a couple of times, and we've done some interesting episodes together. He's the director of cardiac anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital and was the former director of the clinical, or I should say chairman of the clinical competency committee for the anesthesiology residency at Mass General Hospital. And then we have Dr. Jason Brookman, who was an attending here at Johns Hopkins. That's how I got to know him. He's now in private practice, but will be transitioning back to academic practice at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center very soon. And Jason actually has lived through this and is going to share his story with us. So I think this is going to be really, really interesting. I want to welcome all three of you to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. So, Jason, let me start uh, by asking you um, if you would be comfortable telling us and the audience a little bit about your own story. So, for me, um, I was, uh, as, a, as a kid, I was diagnosed with ADHD uh, and lived with that through my years of schooling and um, my years of training and uh, was treated off and on as a kid and then uh also as a um as an adult going through uh the process of getting into medical school and then in medical school and then in training had various um issues that surrounded the the diagnosis and the um, symptoms that i had with it that uh at different times were challenges that i had to deal with and um basically had to work through the system and figure out what's the best way to maneuver through this system that does, didn't really, at the time, didn't really look very favorably upon disabilities and, and trainees and so forth. Um, that's that, So it must have been a really um, both interesting and challenging experience. Uh, and when you ended up in training at uh, Mass General, Mike uh, was at that time the chair of the Clinical Competency Committee, is that right? Yes. Okay. And Mike, do you want to say a few words about what that experience was like on on your side, and and kind of what what kinds of things came uh, in front of you and your committee? Okay, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, like Jason, like every one of our you know our residents here, was a very highly competitive, intelligent individual. Went through the interview process and everything, and did very well, and entered our program. And 
you know, we started out, all our residents start out in their first month, they work with, with an, uh, on, one-on-one with an attending physician, and even that early, we started to notice a few challenges. And, and some of these, interestingly enough, are things that you would think would function very well in an anesthesiologist, you know, tremendous amount of focus, uh, focus on, on detail. But the focus on detail was also kind of coupled with uh, some rigidity and practice that we noted uh, very early, a little bit of problems with, uh, with time management. And, you know, nothing that we really thought at the time was particularly serious at all. And, you know, as I recall, Jason, you know, proceeded on with his residency. But with about the first six months to a year, we noticed that it was really, you know, it seemed to be getting worse. And um, it, uh, you know, it was really becoming a challenge, especially, you know, even as bigger, more intense cases came along, things needed to be changed, changed, things needed to be changed around. And we met with Jason several times, um, had discussions, and he had a very good mentor that worked, one, you know, that worked one-on-one with him, and um, we didn't really seem to be making a whole lot of progress, and, you know, despite that we kind of continued through our clinical competency course of action, and it really got to one point that I even wrote Jason a letter suggesting that I thought that maybe a specialty other than anesthesiology would, would be right for him. And, and, you know, that was, I think that was hard, certainly hard on Jason, no, you know, no doubt about that. It was, it was hard, it was uh, also hard on me and I know on his mentor. And we did start to suspect that there might be something else going on other than just maybe a poor match with anesthesiology. And Jason, as I recall, you kind of elected to take, you elected to take your own little leave of absence uh, on your own just to kind of assess career, you know, your career path. And um, you know, Jason, maybe you can contribute. You know what you kind of did during that time. Yeah. So, so once once it came to the came to a point where um, I was having enough difficulty in the program, and needed to sort of reassess and like, am I in the right specialty? Do I need to think about going into something else? Um, I thought that I could do anesthesia, but I wasn't. Uh, obviously, with the feedback I was getting, that was something that was of concern. So. What I did is I basically, I, I decided to take an educational leave of absence. I, I took two months off. Um, and during that time, uh, went through a process of, uh, I guess, self-reflection and also um, you know, talking with um, numerous people in, in various aspects of medicine and anesthesia and so forth. Uh, and try to learn a little bit more about adult learning and um, ADHD in adults and how that affects uh, executive function and so forth. And uh, also started a course of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to to help me sort of fine tune uh, some of the issues that I was dealing with. And um, after that two month period or during that two month period, I decided to, um, you know, there was a point where I needed to identify myself as somebody with a disability uh, because I, I felt that without doing so, I wasn't really going to get the fair shake that, that I probably uh, should have gotten, uh, mainly because there were considerations that were not being thought about um, in terms of how to uh, accommodate me with my learning issues. So um, I identified myself, went through the 
the formal process of declaring that I had a disability went through formal evaluation or reevaluation again um, for more for documentation purposes. Um, and uh, then worked with both the occupational health department at Mass General and uh, Mike and other uh, faculty within the leadership of the department to sort of figure out how to best come back as an anesthesia resident and successfully complete my training. And we came up with a, a series of accommodations that, um, you know, in an interactive uh, iterative process to decide sort of what accommodations could be um, made for me in terms of my, my learning style and um, what was reasonable within the, the practice and the, you know, the setting of the training within anesthesia. And so uh, once my two month um, period was up and I was ready to come back, uh, I came back and had basically um, one mentor, uh, a new mentor that I had identified at the time um, and uh, worked with one attending one-on-one uh, -on -one for a period of about a month. Um, and on occasion, one other attending when, that, when my mentor was close call or something of that nature. But uh, basically, uh, was one-on-one -on -one with an attending in the OR for about a month to really fine-tune my practice and my skills in anesthesia, and um, and, and to uh, to sort of step my game up, so to speak, to be where I should have been at my level of training. And then after that month, I progressed as other residents did within the program in the in the residency, and ended up finishing and moving on to bigger and better things. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you, Jason, for sharing that. So um, you mentioned um, that you kind of through this iterative process came up with some accommodations. And uh, I want to talk more about that. But before we get into that specifically, Lisa, let me ask you, because I know you've done some work on this. Let's talk about uh, kind of some of the background here. So tell me a little bit about how prevalent are disabilities kind of both in general and in, in medicine and medicine trainees. What do we know about that? Well, that's a great question. Um, we know that according to the literature, we have about 2.7% of medical students that I self-disclose identify as having disabilities within medical education. Um, we do not, unfortunately, have any comparables in the GME space. So we don't have any information about residents. There are a sprinkling of research uh articles that speak to the various types or categorical types of disability and the prevalence therein, but the methodology on those differs considerably. So it's, it's hard to make estimates and comparisons based on, on those um, studies. What we do know, um, what's published in the literature is the 2.7%. Um, what we do know from the latest data collection, and this is not published quite yet, is that there has been a significant increase in the last three years. So the data that I collected this year, the data we stopped collecting in February, um, has been analyzed and the new numbers are at 4.6% with a significant increase in the number of 
learners, students with disabilities that are in the psychological category, um, reporting anxiety, depression, ADHD, et cetera. So we know that not only is the overall number growing um, considerably, but we also know that the categorical growth for individuals with psychological disabilities has grown um, significantly as well. Okay, so that's interesting. And so do we have any idea within that now, you think 4.6%, how, what, what uh, fraction of that is uh, psychological disability versus physical? Oh, yeah, we have, um, so the 92% of overall five categories of disability, 92% of those that are reporting disability are what we would call non-apparent disabilities. So it's learning disabilities, chronic health disabilities, and psychological. Psychological is about 30%, where the sensory disabilities, so either visual deficits or deaf and hard of hearing and um, in individuals or mobility disabilities. Um, so that could be a learner that's a wheelchair user that makes up only 8% of the population. So the reality is that most individuals that you will come into contact with, uh, that have disabilities, you are not going to know that they have a disability similar to Jason. You would never know that he is a person with a disability unless he told you that. Right. Okay. So that's really good to know. So what, uh, when we think about, uh, and any of you uh, can, can kind of give an answer to this, but when we think about um, disabilities, what are the concerns that we think of both for trainees uh, or practitioners when they're finished with training? What, what role does this play? What are things that we want to think about when we're thinking about this topic and, and what role it plays for the trainee themselves and then potentially for the institution or training program? Well, I'm happy to speak to the concerns that I have from a program perspective, but not not this. It'll be at the kind of opposite perspective of what maybe Mike would have, and you know, both are obviously needed. My concern is that GME in particular is not ready for the learners with disabilities that are coming from the UME space. These individuals that are now in UME are in what I call a post-ADA Amendments Act era. So they have been in a system, if they are registered, of accommodations. They're they're very familiar with the law. They're very comfortable with their identity in, in many cases as a person with a disability. And they understand their rights and they are utilizing accommodations appropriately. Um, that is the best case scenario is that these students are well-informed. They're engaging in the process. They get the accommodations they need. Therefore, they have full access to the program. And if the program at the UME level is doing a good job of providing those accommodations, then the learner is moving through with equal access to curricula and to assessment. That's a great situation to be in. However, when you transition to the GME space and GME is unfamiliar with this population of learner and is not prepared to meet the needs of this population of learner and doesn't have policies in place and doesn't 
um, just really just doesn't have an awareness. The learner who has been used to this, their entire educational trajectory, then comes into a space where there may be an absence of policy, there may be an absence of discussion on the topic. And when they go looking for information about how to disclose and whom to disclose to and what the process is, if they don't find those pieces of information, it's almost like a unwritten communication to the learner to say, you know, in residency, this is not what we do. People don't get accommodated. Um, we don't talk about disability. Almost as if, if you've made it to residency, if you were successful in medical school and matched, you can't possibly be a person with a disability. So there's some unintended consequences of not having some forward-facing messaging in GME. And then I know I've received a lot of calls from around the country from program directors who just are at a loss. They don't know the first thing, you know, what, what should be the first step when a, when a learner discloses a disability to me. And given the legal implications for all of this, you know, a lot of program directors are, are very rightfully, um, I think, you know, have tempered responses, can be a little apprehensive, not really sure what to do. And when they go looking for support, it's really not there. Um, the ACGME, all the ACGME says is that you must follow a process in accordance with federal law. So they don't give any guidance outside of, of that one short sentence. And this, I think, really places program directors and programs, institutions, really, in a really uncomfortable position. I have, I have visited institutions where you can have one residency who is accommodating a learner really well because someone in the residency program, so someone like Mike, is very in tune with what's going on with the law, understands reasonable accommodations, is very progressive in, in their thinking and inclusive in their thinking. And then you could have someone in the same institution, but a different residency who discloses to a program director who absolutely has no idea you know, how to take in a request for accommodations and properly process that. And in the absence of that education, in the absence of that knowledge about how to engage with the learner, they're at risk for, you know, having a response or giving the learner a response that doesn't meet the requirements of the law or sends an unintended message that you know individuals with disabilities are not welcome here. So even under the, the same umbrella of, a, of one institution, you can have very different experiences and different residency specialties. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I want to talk about the actual legal principles involved, but you mentioned at the beginning of your answer to this question that um, you might have kind of an opposite perspective from Mike. So I want to ask what you know, you know, Mike, what is your perspective and how is it opposite from what Lisa was saying or, or tell me more about that? No, so, you know, I think there's a little, a little bit of a distinction needs to be made between medical, you know, the progress that medical schools have made and the progress that, re that residency programs have made. And this is in my, this is in my opinion, but also, you know, there is data that kind of shows it. Too. So in the 1950s, the focus was in medical school, any graduate of medical school needs to be prepared to go into any specialty at all of, of, of medicine. And even into the 1970s, it was basically said that graduates from medical school need to be undifferentiated and have the ability to enter into any specialty 
of medical practice. And I think what that did is it really hindered those with any form of disability from actually going into medicine. Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act had a tremendous impact on what medical schools did. And studies have shown that the amount of accommodations that were provided, services were pro that were provided after creation of the Americans with Disabilities Act in, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in uh, the early 1990s, the changes by 2000 were absolutely tremendous to the point that medical schools were starting to admit students with you know, paraplegia, deaf, and, and other you know, things that in the past just wouldn't have been accepted. We've made tremendous progress in that area. But I think to Lisa's point is, you know, we often think that by self-selection, individuals will, will not desire to go into as broad of specialty as they possibly could. And I, I think that now we're hopefully, at least in small areas, starting to see that residency programs are becoming a little bit more creative in coming up with ways to accommodate those individuals that might be identified as disabilities. But I do agree with Lisa. It doesn't appear that we've in any way made the amount of progress that, that, medical, that medical schools have. You know, to answer your question as to what um, you know, programs need to focus on, really there's two things. You know, a, okay. a dis accommodations for a disability should not change the intrinsic nature of the residency program, and they really should not be cost prohibitive. But cost prohibitive needs to be considered over the entire course of a residence training program. You know, if you invest $1,000 on the first day of residency, that seems like a lot. But if you divide it over the course of a five to seven year program, it's really nothing at all to ultimately create a physician that will contribute a whole lot to society. And I think I just want to clarify, I think what I meant by opposing is the perspective of, I have the perspective of a researcher that's deeply, deeply rooted in undergraduate medical education. So I think what I meant to um, convey is that, you know, Mike is best suited to speak, you know, kind of to the incoming GME space gotcha. um, where I'm really situated in UME. So those two, those two perspectives coming from UME and GME. Gotcha. Perfect. And I'm glad we've got both. So, well, let me ask you this. Is there, and Mike, you kind of touched on this, but are there, should, uh, or, you know, whether it's required or should we, is it true that uh, no, kind of no matter the disability, um, someone should be, should be able to receive accommodations to go into any field? And I'm thinking, for example, is there any, is there anything that a disability would actually, you know, prohibit a person from being able to practice? And I'm, I guess an example might be, and I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, could someone who, who is blind go into pathology, for example, where, uh, you know, in theory, you have to be able to, to look at the slides and uh, under the microscope. Now, maybe there is a way to accommodate that. But my question is, is there, are there certain disabilities that do preclude certain specialties or not? Well, I think, that it, again, it really depends what the, what the critical functions of that particular residency program are. I mean, you know, in anesthesiology, you know, our, our lives is basically airway, breathing, circulation. You know, we're, we're constantly in a source of, you know, in situations where we need to resuscitate individuals. And, you know, an inability to provide, you know, mask ventilation or, you know, to actually intubate a patient, in my opinion, would be prohibitive for an individual actually going in, uh, going into an uh, anesthesiology. That's really 
you know, the nature of what we do on a daily basis. And uh, an inability to perform that, I think, would indicate someone ought to think about actually going into, you know, going into, an, into an, an, another specialty. Okay. And Lisa, Lisa, let me just ask you. So, I mean, do you agree? And if so, you know, how, if at all, are, are medical students counts with disabilities counseled in terms of what specialties, you know, to pursue? That's a great question. Um, I do agree with Mike. I think every residency has to define what the essential functions of that residency are and then communicate it to to applicants to make sure that there is an understanding from both parties that these are the milestones you will be assessed on and that, you know, and to have a robust conversation. I was really lucky. I've, I've been, I've had a lot of privilege in the institutions that I've worked at and I was at UCSF for a long time. And in that institution, I was able to engage the medical students with disabilities about career options. The tricky thing is that in my role there, it was appropriate for me to engage on that topic. Unfortunately, and too often, I think what happens to the to the medical student is that they are counseled out of several specialties that they could engage in um, because the individual counseling them is unaware of reasonable accommodations. They're unaware of the uh, assistive technologies that have been created that reduce many of the barriers that used to be present for an individual. For example, we have several um, surgeons that are wheelchair users for one reason or another. And at Michigan, we're, we're very lucky to have the head of our uh, neurosurgery department is a wheelchair user, and she performs surgery um, sitting down, for example. We have another family medicine doc who performs C-sections in a standing wheelchair. So I don't think when you look at an individual who's a wheelchair user, I don't think that the first thing that comes to mind for those individuals when you're doing career your um, counseling would be, oh, yes, you should be a surgeon. And so I think we have to be careful. I think it's it's a balancing act, right? There are, there are definitely absolutely uh, disabilities that will preclude someone from practicing a specific type of medicine. I, I think we would be um, foolish to say that there are not. But what what I do think is that we have to engage in a very thoughtful discussion and an informed discussion about what is possible. I think that's where a lot of medical schools or residency programs miss the mark is that they don't know what is actually possible. And so engaging with disability experts, engaging with, um, I, I love one of the things I absolutely, absolutely am so appreciative of with Jason is that by Jason's story and his willingness to share his story, he's had an immeasurable and positive impact on learners and programs because people would make assumptions about what it means to have ADHD and what the impact of ADHD is. And people might say, somebody that has, you know, if you're in anesthesia, you have to be on hyper alert all the time. You have to be able to make split second decisions. There's no way that somebody that has an executive functioning deficit could ever do that. Um, these are, you know, part and parcel of the assumptions that individuals make about people with disabilities. But going back to what Mike's point was about making sure that, you know, these are the competencies, these are the skills that you have to have, and here are the essential requirements of this position. I 
on the flip side, also absolutely believe that those essential functions should not be waived or altered in any way. I think, you know, they're, they're either going to be reasonable accommodations that you can develop to remove the barriers and allow the, the learner to perform, or there aren't. And in the cases where there aren't, then that learner is not appropriate for that particular specialty. And I think you have to have somebody that is steeped in the knowledge about what's available and, you know, does the research to be able to properly counsel a student in the right direction. And it, and it's tricky because you also don't want to be perceived as, you know, again, making stereotype decisions or counseling based on assumptions about a particular disability. Yeah. And so I, that's what I was thinking as you were talking was, wow, you really need someone to do this counseling who has real training in this. Because as you said, it's not necessarily intuitive. And unless you know what kind of accommodations are out there and kind of the landscape of what is possible, you might not know that uh, there are neurosurgeons and, and uh, you know, obst obstetricians doing um, surgery or family docs doing uh, doing surgery. Uh, you know, with accommodations that allow them to do it, despite uh, being wheelchair users or having, you know, another disability. So that's really important. And um, I imagine there are nowhere near enough people with that training uh, who are doing this counseling. Oh, you've brought up another really um, good point. We do a couple of trainings a year, my group and I, but there is an absolute dearth of qualified professionals to provide this guidance. So the thing that gives me um, confidence and, and hope in the changes happening are that faculty are now very interested in this topic and are you know, exploring the literature and doing the work themselves, similar to Mike, who's very invested in ensuring that the program has equal access. So, you know, and it, the other thing that's missing with, we call them disability resource professionals or disability resource providers. One of the things that's missing with that particular career path and, and, and that profession is this expertise in clinical medicine. So even if you find someone that knows the disability piece, it is you know, it's, it's, that's only half of the puzzle. And if they don't understand medicine, it's very difficult then to make a, a distinction and reasonable accommodation for a clinical program or a clinical setting. That's why you really need the partnership of, of faculty and physicians yeah. um, who are well-versed in this. Absolutely. And I, and I can re recall just going back 10 years, it's been roughly about 10 years since I was going through this whole process and the literature out there, when I was doing my research over that two month leave of absence, it was really hard to find anything current. And I'm, at this point, there's been leaps and bounds done in terms of graduate medical education, but there really was nothing even as recent as 10 years ago, um, even after the, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act amendment was, was passed into law, there really wasn't very much out there. Um, and, and it was really hard to find anybody who really knew anything, whether it be in the literature or even within the institution, you know, the, the occupational health people weren't really sure how to handle this. And, um, you know, there there was a bouncing back and forth between, well, is it the medical school? Is it the residency? Is it the hospital? Is it the, you know, no one no one really knew. So it, it was uh, challenging to say the least. Yeah. Um, I think, um, 
we, we do need to recognize we got very lucky in the fact that we actually did encounter an expert, which turned out to be Jason. Um, you know, when we first sat, actually, when we, we sat down after Jason's leave of absence, he came in and he had written down one of the accommodations that he felt that he, he needed, all of, all of which were completely reasonable, most of which would have been beneficial for any resident in any circumstance whatsoever. He had the articles outlined, the key points from the outline, and it, all of a sudden, you know, it really transitioned, transitioned into this teamwork to get him what he actually what he actually needed. And I think that, you know, that one thing that needs to be um, a plan, I think it's, it's very important, is that the individuals also need to advocate for themselves, and that's exactly what Jason did. I mean... It, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I think our attitudes were changed. You know, we became learners ourselves from learning from Jason. And I think that was, you know, I think it was very, very key, you know, to, to, to his success was the way that he grasped the circumstance and, um, and came in with so much knowledge himself that he had gained over this two-month period. Yeah, that's great. So let me ask you guys about the legal principles uh, involved here. So we've touched on them. Lisa, you mentioned uh, that, you know, it certainly may be possible that people would not um, be aware. They might even say something that was directly uh, being, you know, that was directly in contradiction to what the legal requirements are. Um, So what are the legal principles that people should know? Lisa, you want that or you want me to? Yeah, Mike, why don't you go ahead? Okay, so, you know, so, I basically found three key legal cases, I, I thought, from the late 80s and the early 90s that really kind of outline what the requirements are to a program. And, you know, one was uh, Doherty versus the Southern College of Optometry. And what it says that you know, a reasonable accommodation does not necessarily require an institution to eliminate a course requirement that is reasonably necessary. And... You know, but why reasonably necessary is, again, something like an anesthesiologist really probably should be able to innovate a patient. But I think a lot of uh, those individuals that have disabilities, they encounter you know, unreason- uh, administrative challenges that simply shouldn't exist. For instance, let's say you have a rotation in obstetric anesthesia that's at another hospital, and at your own hospital you have obstetrics also. Requiring an individual that has mobility problems to have to go to another hospital just because that's what we do is not reasonable. You can easily accomplish that in your home in, in your home institution. Um, another another case, Wayne versus Tufts University. You know, they said that deference must be afforded to academic decisions that made that uh, that affect disabled individuals, but the institution must demonstrate that no reasonable accommodation is possible. And that means they really make the effort, that just as Lisa said, we sit down, we get creative. What is truly necessary? And then, you know, the third one I talk about is, you know, had to deal with accommodations for severe hearing loss in a nursing student. And that really outlined that it can't create an undue financial burden on the institution. Um, such that, you know, we can't force the institution to have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars necessarily. But we also need to be reasonable and realize that we're not just investing for a day, we're investing for the course of a residency 
and then for an entire medical career. So the considerations need to be about long, you know, really about the long term benefits. And Mike, how, how how do they define an undue financial burden? Geez, I, you know, I, I can't. I don't necessarily have the you know the the dollar amounts down there. You know, the one thing I do is so, most. Most accommodations are like less than $500, and a huge chunk of them don't cost anything whatsoever. But I, I can't say there's a specific dollar value. Lisa, do you know? Yeah, there there is not a specific dollar value. But what I want to stress is that, you know, undue burden is taking into account the entire operating budget of the institution. So, uh, the most famous and most recent case is, is Cyril's versus Johns Hopkins University, where um, up after hiring a nurse that was deaf, the unit determined that they could not afford to accommodate the nurse because, and this was under employment law, because the interpreter would have cost more than the nurse was actually making. And they claimed that they did not have the budget within that particular uh, department to support that. And what the court came back and said was, look, it's not your budget that determines whether something is reasonable. It is the it is Johns Hopkins Hospital budget that determines whether something's reasonable. And in that case, the court actually found for Cyril saying that it was reasonable to provide a sign language interpreter for her. Um, I think that in most cases, accommodations are are well under $5,000. There are the, you know, interpreting costs when you have an individual that is deaf or hard of hearing, but the return on investment in those cases, I cannot even express to you how much return there is. Um, I actually work for a physician, the first chair in the United States to be a deaf physician, um, Philip Zazov, and I have another colleague, Mike McKee, who are both deaf physicians. Um, and as you know, we have so many patients that have um you know, healthcare disparities do for no other reason but the fact that they are a person with a disability, and the deaf population is certainly among those. And the return with these two individual physicians has been amazing. Um, the patients that are cared for in, in our deaf clinic and by our deaf physicians have less disparities when compared to those patients nationally. So when we look at, you know, what is the ultimate um, return for someone going into medicine, and that is to care for, you know, our patients. And so when we look at the patient population, we think, okay, you know, is it better to have the physicians kind of mirror or or represent the patient population that we have and understand them, whether it's cultural differences that, that cause the disparities or language differences that cause the disparities. So, you know, keeping that in mind, but there are several cases, um, and, it, and usually it's with deaf and hard of hearing because the costs are higher um, with those accommodations. But the Cyril's versus Johns Hopkins Hospital is one in the employment setting. So that would be um, akin to GME. And then um, the Argeny versus Creighton University case, which is in UME, which also found eventually for Argeny that the cost of accommodating a deaf student in, in medical school is 
is not burdensome. I mean, that is a small school that is not, you know, I think at the time was a newer medical school. So we're not talking about a, you know, research one institution. Um, and they still found that it was reasonable. And then there is another case, Featherstone, um, they're just multiple cases. So at this point, I would say that institutions need to recognize that claiming that uh, an accommodation is an undue burden is is not likely to be very fruitful. Um, as Mike said, most accommodations are not prohibitively costly. And we know that the accommodations for in- individuals that are deaf or hard of hearing, there's case law to support that in in, in, in every case for the last eight years, um, the courts have upheld that this is not unreasonable. So, you know, I think institutions need to kind of take the cost of an accommodation and move that over as a as a non-starter because defending that, defending the, you know, burdensome prong that is listed in the law is is not likely to to work. Um, and I think, you know, I love the way that, that Mike kind of situates the cost of an accommodation is that it's likely to not be very large. And we're talking about, you know, this being utilized over the course of three years or seven years, but even further into that, we are investing in a physician in, in the middle of a physician shortage. And we are yep. investing in a physician with a disability who will have a lived experience and, and knowledge of, you know, a patient population that will and can prove very useful to treating that population. Absolutely. I think that's such an important Yeah, and Lisa, I think I think another huge part here is that for a study we reviewed recently is that those programs that actually have experience with disabled residents and offer accommodations for disabled uh, sorry for disa- disabled uh, medical students actually have more resources available and utilize resources more readily for, for, for medical students that are not disabled, but that are experiencing their own challenges. So the benefit extends in multiple different directions to multiple ind- individuals, including those that wouldn't necessarily um, consider themselves disabled. Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, and, and so, you know, there's like benefits all over, right? I mean, as you said, Lisa, obviously this makes a big difference for the individual. Secondly, it makes a huge difference for their future patients. And then what Mike is saying is that uh, it can actually make a huge difference in a positive way for the fellow students who benefit in other ways. So, you know, there's a lot to be said. Um, so let me ask, uh, you know, I know, uh, so I, I work at Johns Hopkins and we have an office of disability services here. So any trainee... Uh, who feels they need accommodations can go to this office and they will work with them and then inform the program of, you know, what the reasonable accommodations are. Um, but I, I don't know if does every institution have that. And if not, how would a program know what um, accommodations they, they are required to make or should make or even could make for a, a resident? Or how would a resident know what accommodations they could potentially get um, in the absence of that kind of an office? Well, that I think you've really hit on part of the problem. There, there's a huge disparity in knowledge base. Um, I am familiar with your your new director of disability services, and that person is is well informed. They've been in this in this field for a long time, um, and that's where I, I call it the privilege. Of, of institutions. So if you go to UCSF, if, right. if you go to Rush, if you go to Hopkins, if you're at Minnesota, you are going to get 
a well-informed, you know, supportive um, experience when it comes to disability accommodations. That's not consistent across the U.S., and that is one of the big problems is that we have residents and medical students that are presenting very similarly in different institutions but are being met with resistance in one institution and open arms in another. And it really is a function of education. And I know Mike and Jason and I, since meeting, have paired up and are really trying to um, build a more robust uh, base of, of literature and knowledge and resources really for, for GME programs. Um, we have a manuscript right now that we're, we're working with and just really trying to educate programs on, you know, what they need to be aware of, what they need to do at a minimum. Like, you know, here is the floor that you need to meet to be, compliant with the law. Um, luckily, last year in March 2018, uh, the AAMC put out a uh, special report on really the state of disability in medical education, and it was titled The Lived Experience of Physicians and Learners with Disabilities or something there like that. There, it's, it's available for free in PDF form on the AAMC website. And it touches on graduate medical education, although the report is really geared towards undergraduate medical education. Uh, a lot of the same principles apply. Uh, people will often say, well, the law is different. It's Title I versus Title II of the ADA. And the law, yes, there are some differences, but the general principles apply across both. So I think a GME program that is looking for a place to start would be really um, – well-informed by going to that report and looking, reading the report, and then looking at the appendix, which is a checklist for programs who are looking to make their um, accessibility more robust or looking to learn more about how to be um, compliant with the law. And that was something that, you know, Jason contributed to in a really meaningful way. Um, and I know that, you know, Mike has read the report. It, it is it's really helpful for programs and it's one of the, the better resources I think available at this time. And then when you look at the paper that, that Mike and Jason did, it takes all of those principles that are available in the report and situates it in a case study that makes it very, very real for, for program directors who may be reading this or other faculty to say, okay, here is, here's what happened and here is how a program, it's, it's really a great example of, of coming together. I like the way that Mike said, you know, it was a very much a team approach, but it gives programs an exemplar to look to when thinking about how to engage with their um, residents that have disabilities or who are struggling and may benefit from accommodation, may not even be diagnosed at this point. And I, and I also really appreciate how Mike said, you know, they found an expert and that expert was Jason, because that's something that I think is really missing. And I really appreciate the, you know, the focus on that from, from Mike's perspective, which is, look, the, 
people that have the disability and have lived with it their entire lives, those are the experts. They are the individuals who can tell you, how is this not working for me? What are the barriers that are in the environment? And when you sit and start to listen and really ask questions of the individual with the disability, it's amazing how creative the process can get really quickly because it's a thought, it's a more thoughtful process that's being informed by, like Mike said, an expert, the, the person with the disability. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Uh, if a medical student is applying for residency, a medical student with a, a disability, um, a documented disability, they're receiving accommodations in medical school and they're applying for residency, are they required to disclose to the programs they're applying to that they have a disability or not? No. No. Okay. And so it would be, a, so the process would be if it's not a, a disability, you could tell by obviously by looking, then you wouldn't, uh, the program wouldn't know the resident would, would, if they matched there would come and would then, if, if they chose would disclose it and then ask for accommodations once they were there. Is that right? Correct. And we really encourage, I think it's a, for me, it's a professionalism issue. I, I certainly respect and support students not disclosing through the match process. Um, and, but at the same time, a lot of students will disclose through the match process, but I think that they need to be very thoughtful about choosing a program that can meet the needs, either through talking to a confidential resource like the person that you have at Hopkins, you know, a, a student could call her and inquire about what would be available if they were to match in, in a Hopkins program. Um, but I think once you match, I think you're not legally required to disclose, but I think there's an ethical requirement to disclose and have a robust conversation with the, the program so that accommodations can be put into place before the learner starts, which will increase the odds, right? If the, if the learner has complete access to the program, it will increase the odds of success. I think where we get into a lot of trouble is when learners don't disclose or when the program doesn't have, back to what we said at the beginning of the show, you know, there there are not forward-facing messages. There's no transparency about what to do. There, there's no direction to the learner. And then they don't know how to disclose. They don't know whom to go to. And they might take that as a kind of un, unwritten kind of communication that, hey, we don't have individuals with disabilities here, so you might not want to disclose. I think also when learners come into what they might consider a hostile, a more hostile or scary environment, they start residency and and nothing is said, or they ask someone and it's shut down immediately, which has happened, um, that then, you know, the learner becomes very hesitant to disclose anything. And then the third thing that could happen, and I think, um, and I'd love to know Jason's thoughts on this as well, is that, you know, you have somebody who didn't need accommodations in medical school. They they were doing well. A lot of individuals with disabilities are what we would call twice exceptional. They're extremely intelligent. They've come up with kind of self-mitigating ways of working around their um, disability, and they didn't require accommodations in undergrad. They didn't require accommodations in medical school, and they hit residency, and it is really hard. Residency is really hard. And all of a sudden, things that would have been able to be um, self-accommodated are no longer able to be self-accommodated. And so then, you know, the learner is there wondering, like, well, I didn't have problems before. How do I ask for help? It's a very different environment. And there's not as much care to 
you know, kind of 360 envelope the student, right? And say, oh, we noticed you're, you're having difficulty. Here are 10 resources um, like there are at the UME level. Uh, so I, I know I, you know, with, the, I think it was Mike that said, or no, it was Jason that said, you know, sometimes you don't even know where to go. Right there's is there there's a resource for UME but it's not a resource for GME and and where do you disclose is it occupational health is it human resources is it the ADA office is it your program director I mean that's step one where do you even go to find the assistance you need Yeah, and I think to, to that, in terms of um, the um, the issue of uh, you know the learning style it. Residency, like you were saying, is is very different than medical school, and the learning style is different too. You're, it's much more on the, uh, you know, individual adult learning, self um, self directed kind of learning with clinical practice, whereas in medical school things were very much more structured, and you had a defined curriculum, and you know you went through this process of, okay beginning of the course or the rotation, this is what was expected of you. You're there for a finite period of time. And at the end, you're going to have a shelf exam and you're going to have, you know, it's, it's much more structured uh, compared to residency where things are structured, but not quite at that level. Right. So that seems like a really important point as well. Um, so I think we've covered a lot of great stuff. I want to give each of you a chance if you think uh, there's anything else you want to add or any kind of summing up um, points you want to make to do that. Um, Jason, since we started with you, why don't we um, start this last kind of sum up with you? Um, I want to thank you again for being willing to share your story. We'll put the link to um, the article in a case study um, that you wrote along with Mike and some others in the show notes. Um, but mm-hmm. I want to thank you for that and for your courage and being willing to share that. I'm sure it makes a huge difference for trainees, uh, and anyone else, uh, who have similar, um, situations and that they're struggling with, um, anything you want to say? Well, I've definitely had uh, trainees approach me after, you know, finding this and other resources that I've had out on the internet. Um, and it, it's, it's gratifying to see that more people are interested in, in talking about this and that it's being talked about, uh, at a, at a higher level. Uh, it's certainly something that was, when I was going through the process was really difficult to go through because there really wasn't very much resources out there. Um, but uh, I'm glad to see that things are actually improving in, in terms of uh, who's, who's talking about this. Just like, you know, you're having this uh, podcast that is listened to by a number of people. Uh, it sort of helps spread the word. So to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mike, anything you want to um, add before we sign off? You know, I think that in our society nowadays, we, we sometimes need to remember, you know, that I feel in some ways that, that disabilities is the lost diversity, you know, that we really need to, you know, you know, to think about the wonderful contributions that so many individuals that we often forget about can really make, you know, to, to education and, and society, you know, and as I hope as we become more and more open that, um, you know, that we're really willing to try and be creative to figure out ways of diversifying the field of medicine even more, especially in the areas of diversity. And, and again, I just like you, I thank Jason so much. It's actually been, a, I think, a wonderful process working with him and to see his, you know, success as a physician. And, um, you know, it's one of the greatest things about 
being a clinical competency chair is seeing those individuals that really became, you know, such high level colleagues. Absolutely. And Lisa, anything to add? Yeah, I have two points. One, I want to just echo what, what Mike just said. I do think that disability is a lost diversity, but I want to remind program directors that we have this new common core requirement for GME that says the program, you know, and the sponsoring institution has to engage in practices that folks focus on mission-driven, ongoing, systematic (laughs) recruitment and retention of a diverse and inclusive workforce of residents. And I think that disability can absolutely fill, you know, those requirements, those new requirements for GME. And second, I want to let the listeners know that this has become a worldwide, not just U.S.-wide, movement towards disability inclusion. And if you go on Twitter, and search the hashtag docs with disabilities, you will find literally hundreds of doctors with disabilities, um, both in the US and abroad. And Jason has been profiled as one of those docs, um, where people are exchanging information. And that's a great place to go to kind of find out what the landscape is um, with this new set of, of diverse learners and physicians that are in the workforce that are really making change for the better. Absolutely. That's great to know. And we'll put some resources um, and uh, and some citations in the show notes for people to access. Um, and of course, uh, if people have questions, they can get in touch with me and I can put them in touch with anyone uh, of you guys who um, might have the answer. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. It's time for random recommendations. Again, unfortunately, not going to be able to include our guests uh, because I'm doing this post hoc, but soon, soon we will be including guests uh, on these random recommendations. So I will just tell you a random recommendation from me is when you're in the mood to really eat something unhealthy, delicious, but extremely unhealthy, try these brownies. They are known by a variety of names. Uh, I'm just going to call them extra special brownies. And no, not in that way. What I mean is this recipe, very easy to do. And what you do is take chocolate chip cookie dough, put it in the bottom of a pan, then put Oreo cookies on top of that, and then brownie mix on top of that, and then bake it. And it is pretty amazing. I have found that the best combination, I think, is to get uh, Toll House uh, Extra Chip or Chip Wonder or Chip Fanatic or something, the one with the lots of chips, including some of them are dark chocolate chips. Get that Toll House cookie dough for your cookie dough. Use double stuff Oreos for the Oreos. And then Pillsbury, the darker one, Pillsbury brownie mix. That combination is really the best for me. So check them out only when you've uh, been fasting for a couple days and you feel like you've earned the right to some serious junk. I don't recommend eating these things often, but for a special treat when you really want to have something that is unhealthy but delicious, check out these brownies. They're really good. All right. That was really interesting stuff. I really got a lot out of that, and I'm really glad these guys came on. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Let us know what you thought. You can leave a comment, and uh, everyone can learn from what you have to say. You can also see all the other episodes there as well, of course, and leave a comment on any that you'd like. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C. 
where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Of course, you can also make a donation by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. You can do that anytime you would like. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. ACRAC original music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Fitzsimons, Brookman, and Meeks, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.